0: All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we uh, thank you for your word, and we ask, Father, that we can handle it accurately and truthfully today. We pray that you'd give us engaged hearts, that your Holy Spirit would come upon us, Lord, for we long to hear from you, not from one another right now. Uh, Lord, speak to our hearts. Bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I thought we'd start with a little bit of Bible trivia. All right, so where does it say, God helps those who help themselves? Anybody? Anybody? nowhere. Right. Ben Franklin said it. Isn't that a wonderful quote? By the way, um, Ben Franklin incident, incidentally was not uh, what you call a confessing Christian. I think much of his life wouldn't have reflected that sort of life. But he actually believed the Bible was incredibly important and tried to propagate its following in the colonies. In fact, he was a big supporter and promoter of George Whitfield when he came in the first Great Awakening. And George Whitfield also spent a lot of their personal time preaching directly to Ben Franklin. As they would say, it was an interesting relationship they had. Um, secondly, um, are the epistles the wives of the apostles? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just totally dumb, but it's funny. You know? um, the, uh, no, the epistles, for those who don't know, are the letters of the New Testament, which make up the large body of it for Romans all the way to Jude, why call them epistles rather than just simply letters? Well, I don't know. But uh, I assume they wanted a more fancy term, because le- epistles just means letters, and, which is ironic to have a more fancy term for it, because the Greek itself, you know, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, a common Greek. So when it was read, it was meant to be understood by everybody. So in some ways, by calling them apostles, epistles and not letters, you've actually gone against the accessibility the scriptures are shooting for. Uh, Third and final question, what are the world's most translated books? Anyway, number four. By the way, there's different lists on this. It's not absolute, but this is my list. Or Max's, I think, actually. Um, Pilgrim's Progress, 200 translations. Number four. Number three, Pinocchio. Between 240 and 260 translations. Number two, The Little Prince. 250 to 300 translations, and number one, brrr, the Bible. 3,312 total translations. They made up of 670 complete ones, 1,500 plus New Testament ones, and 1,100 portions of. Which, if you're curious what kind of coverage that is in the world, that means that uh, there's about 1.5 billion, you know, somewhere around 20% of the world's population doesn't have a full translation in their mother tongue in their first language, doesn't mean they don't have it in their second language, a third language, a mother tongue complete Bible. Um, 114 million, less than 2%, don't have any portion in their mother tongue. But again, people speak more than one language, especially in some of these more obscure languages. And so, uh, anyway, it's funny, we have a group that just loves statistics, so it's funny. You see their eyes all light up, they ignore what I say most of the time, but ooh, stats. You know? uh, so we've got some more stats later on for you guys who like that kind of stuff. Um, what does this mean? So what? Um, well, one thing it means is uh, that almost everybody in the world has access to scriptures at some point, you know, and if not, mostly in the, even in their mother tongue. In fact, if you remember, this, this, this church itself was very important in uh, getting the Bible into one of these mother tongues, Cagayan, in the Philippines, uh, which is one of 120 languages in the Philippines. And we sent, you know, Scott and Louise McGregor and were their primary supporters for 40 years, even after going to education. So it's like a huge block of funding and, and uh, support over 40 years was so that language, so they can get a New Testament in that language in the Philippines. They went there, learned the language. In fact, you know, many languages, of uh, these obscure languages were actually written down for the first time by Bible translators. You're going in there trying to learn the language, understand the languages. Even a lot of the grammar was discovered by these translators who then put it for the first time um, on paper and made a written language. Which, um, but that's one thing it says. The second, the second implication we have from this is that people find it really, really, really important that the Bible goes everywhere in the world. And people sacrifice their entire lives to make this book... Understandable to that person's heart. There's such a few people, there's just tons of people, 3,000 languages, and there's projects to, you know, continuing even today. Why? Why do they find that so important? So we want to talk about what is the big deal about the Bible? Why are we sitting up here giving Bibles to kids? You know, why do we consider that an important thing to do? One of the things we're doing in the fall is, um, as we move to our new denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, the ECC, we want to talk about some of the things uh, that the ECC believes that are important to them. Now, nothing's going to be that terribly shocking to us, because when we're going to talk about them, you are like, well, yeah, we already believe that. But that's actually one of the reasons we're moving to them, because, yeah, <laughs> like, they're kind of in the same place we are, but we want to kind of talk about some of these things. Now, if you want to understand the ECC at the start, one thing you need to understand about them is they're not, you know, they're not really this creedal denomination, with very carefully delineated they have overall orthodoxy in their faith but they're not they tend not to be rigid they want to have people who may have different specific convictions on the scriptures they want to try to group them together and put them together you know let them all be able to coexist together so if you really want to understand ECC it's better to understand in terms of ethos they sort of have these four cultural, they call them distinctives of the ECC. If you, want to, if you understand these four ideas, you'll really understand basically what happens in the ECC. And they are biblical, devotional, missional, and connectional. Those are really the distinctives of the ECC. Biblical, devotional, missional, and connectional, what's that mean? Well, biblical means they're committed to the word of God. Devotional means they're committed to intimacy with God more expensively, not just this theoretical thing about a book, but your relationship with God. They're committed to the work of God, meaning God is doing things in the world, and you know if that's evangelism or, or the lost, but they are, they are missional. And lastly, they are connectional, committed to the family of God, which is part of that idea of why they're not so doctrinally rigid is the idea that we uh, want to connect to everybody who loves the Lord and wants to serve him, then we are family with you. You know, we're not our own little crew over here of people. Um, I hear a sound. Is that God speaking to us or something else? I don't know. (laughs) That's all right. Um, That's pretty exciting. Um, It's interesting. You know, 17% of people increased their Bible reading because of apps being made onto cell phones. So I just thought I'd bring that up right now, you know, um, <laughs> as I try to get focused again. Um, today, don't worry, uh, today uh, we're talking about that first distinctive, biblical, committed to the word of God. What does that really mean and why? You know, um, and it's funny, when we, the uh, leadership team got together to create new vision and mission statements, you know, vision being who we want to be, mission, how does that play itself out? One of the first things on mission they said is, we want to make sure that we stress the idea that we are a place that's, cent- that's centered on scriptures. You know, and, and, but, but why is this such a big deal? And it's not just a modern big deal. Actually, you can go back in the history of the church and almost all throughout its history, if you want to go back from first century Jerusalem where the church started, you want to go to sixth century Ireland where it was centered there. If you want to go to you know today, maybe the center of the church in Africa. You, if you looked at these three crews you'd probably say there's no way these people have a common faith. Their language, their culture, their worship, nothing would appear the same out of these three groups. But if you dug a little deeper, you'd see each one of these groups actually had these absolute foundations on the scriptures. They were all people of the book. And thus, they are one. And it's with us today. Today. It's interesting, if you um, look at Thomas Cahill, the historian's book, The Gift of the Jews, How a Tribe of Desert Nomads Changed the Way Everyone Thinks and Feels, what do you think his conclusion is? How did this little group of desert nomads have this incredible impact on the world? Because they were people of the book. The scriptures were that unique thing they had. So today I want to talk about what does it mean to, you know, being a people of the book? You know, what is it this book claims to be? I, we hear lots of people say, well, this is what the Bible is, this is what the Bible is, here's why you should read it. But what's it actually say about itself? You know, what's, what claims does the Bible make about what it is? And what claims does it make about what its purpose is? You hear lots of stuff thrown around. And, you know, I, I would worry less about what everybody else says the Bible is or isn't and what its purposes are. What does the Bible say of itself? You've got to start there. What's the claim? And so that's what we want to talk about a little bit, the Bible's claim of itself today. What does it say it is and what its purposes are? So for that, we're going to go as uh, Roz read in 2 Timothy 3. And it says, um, as for you, you know, continue what you've learned and have been convinced of because you know from whom you learned it and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures. You know, how, that's an interesting phrase, too, that Timothy from infancy has known the Scriptures. It's interesting when we talk about a first-grade Bible day. You know, that actually, Timothy got his first grade Bible as well. Uh, or first hand second grade. Don't want to offend any kids. Um, at the start of Second Timothy, it says, I've reminded, I'm, uh, this is Paul talking to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. It's amazing the way you can see a little bit of the kind of life that Timothy had. You know, grandmother faithful, mother faithful, and now, you know, Timothy, you know, dripping with a life in the scriptures from the earliest age, from infancy. Uh, he's learning the scriptures. And now as a young man, one of his problems if you follow the life of Timothy is that he's just incredibly knowledgeable, understanding, and mature. And he's going into these churches of people far older. And how to have, you know, Paul, a lot of these letters to Timothy are about how can you have leadership in the midst of that? How do you respect the different folks? But take hold of what you've been taught and learned from your earliest of ages now. Take hold of that. And the way it's described as what the scriptures are able to do here is it says, they are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's a great phrase as to what the scriptures were able to do. It was able to lead you to faith in Jesus, to make you wise to understand that salvation, that deliverance of God that comes through Jesus. For what's it say? What's the key idea of what scripture is? Here is the central claim. And again, this may seem obvious, but I don't find it so obvious. And I don't find, um, you know, sometimes I think saying stuff here goes, well, we all know that. It's, it's, I think there's oftentimes an often incons- inconsistence between what we think we know and the implications of that. It says this amazing phrase, all scripture is God-breathed. Theonustos. What an amazing phrase. You know, God and the wind of God, breath of God, which is actually eventually where they get the word for spirit of God because God moves like wind and breath. That the scriptures themselves are an outbreath of God. What a phenomenal phrase. All, and not just some scriptures, right? All scripture. It's the outbreath of God, the very words of God. As Paul says in Romans, when he talked about what advantage has the Jew? Much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. So the scripture itself, it's not just a book, right? It is the words of the creator that are coming around in a book we're walking around with. Thus you understand also why they wanted to make sure these words got to every corner of this world, that every single person on this planet could read these very words. And, they're not, um, and you begin to see there's a different quality to them. Now, one thing we know about Scripture is it was never like uh, this idea that God said things and a person wrote it down. Like, they're listening to it and they're just writing it down. It wasn't like, hey, hey, you, you, get off of my cloud, for those who know that song. <laughs> I'm dating myself, but, but it's not like that, okay? It, was, um, it came through that person's life. It says... <laughs> You know, in Second Peter, it says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never has origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This idea that, you know, God actually, through his Spirit, comes into the enfleshment of that person, and it's not, their origin is not there, but yet they write. And it actually becomes this kind of incarnated version into whatever person it is. It's, it's much like a sailboat. You know, the person's like a sailboat that sits here. Then the wind of God comes, fills that sail, and puts it across. And out come scriptures. And it's not just a New Testament idea like Peter or Paul. This is how David described it, right? David we think of all these, all these psalms he wrote. Well, here's how he describes it. He says, this is his last words of David. He says, the oracle of David, son of Jesse. The oracle of the man exalted by the Most High. The man anointed by the God of Jacob. Israel's singer of songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. Right? He's not a prophet, right? He was a king. But he's saying that all these things he wrote, it was the Spirit of God working through him, that God's word was on his tongue. And furthermore, then when the New Testament uses these words, even a psalm, it carries complete authority as God's words, not David's words. For instance, in Acts, it says, Sovereign Lord, they said, You have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Here's who you're talking about, right? The creator of all things. And you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? And he goes on and quotes Psalm 2. To explain the circumstances and even understand how to live in the midst of those circumstances. The word of God, absolutely authoritative. Right, it's David's word, but yet it is God speaking through it. That's the idea of it. So, and that's in brief. You can go on for on and on about this idea, but all Scripture is God breathed. Um, that's it's not just a book, right? It, it's not you know. Right now, we live in a culture of books everywhere, right? Books, 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 and so one other book doesn't seem that different. But being people, the book and the angel was an amazing thing. There were people who believed that they, it wasn't like, it wasn't much as stories from God or thoughts or you know myths. There was a sense that God had a written revelation and spoke it. And people see the quality of it's different. I mean, I don't know, but you know, for me, I had the blessing of never reading the Bible ever till I was 27 years old, and uh, then reading it and just going, "What is this thing?" See, there's something radically different about this book, being so radically amazed and changed by it. I wasn't pouring through the scripture because someone told me, you need to pour through the scripture. I was pouring through the scripture because it was like feeding my soul in a way that I'd never experienced before in my life. And the radical thing is, that's not just me. That's what happens again and again with these translators. What do you think encourages them to scatter throughout the world? This obscure people get it translated into their language that people read it and suddenly they're interacting with the living god that god who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it they're suddenly interacting and relating with it relating to him if you ever read like a lot of old documents and old books it doesn't have that effect on you you know it's very unusual you could, i mean uh, you know but the bible's written so long ago yet everybody even now no matter the across culture and across time feel they're interacting with the creator of the universe and worshiping him through these words. There's nothing like it. All scripture is God-breathed. But what's it for? What's its purpose? I think a lot of people mistake their purpose and it actually gets some problems. I think a lot of folks who want to defend the Bible actually get a little confused on what its purpose is and actually end up trying to make the Bible be and do things that it was never intended to do or be. I think there's other people who kind of say they, yeah, yeah, we believe the Bible, we're authoritative to it, but don't really grasp the claims of the Bible either. It's kind of on both sides. You know, people, you, I think it's really critical that you have a sense of what the Bible itself claims to be for. You know, think about it, if, you, um, if you're reading, a, uh, say, a lawyer's brief or a, a his statement on how to, he wants to convict a criminal. And it's closing statement. You know, that, that closing statement has a lot of factual information in it. It has a lot of historical information. It may have scientific data. It may have all these kind of things. But it's all very carefully crafted for a purpose. And if you read it as a historical document, you're probably going to end up pretty skewed as to what happened in history. You're going to end up pretty skewed understanding of science. But it's not ahistorical, nor is it unscientific. But it has a purpose. You actually start with the purpose of the document and then that helps you understand what I do with all the other information. Right? So what does the Bible say its purpose is? What's it trying to do? Well, it says here, all scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right? That's what it's for. Teaching, rebuking, correcting. By the way, in English, rebuking and correcting to me I always struggle with it. it Seem like very similar ideas. In the, it's not really that similar of an idea. Um, rebuking is like, you know, when someone is going saying this thing, you can actually say, no, that is not true. You know, you, re- you rebuke that because the scriptures are thoroughly authoritative. What you're teaching is wrong. Correcting is much more like what a um, like a tutor would do to you in math. You know, if you've got a, a tutor, they're not looking to rebuke you, by your, you know, for your incorrect handling of that. They're trying to correct the way you're thinking about it and doing this problem so that you can come to the right answer. Right? They're trying to correct your way. But anyway, that, that's the scripture. Correcting, rebuking, training. Uh, training in righteousness. For what purpose, ultimately? Here's your big line you underline. That you may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The servant of God has everything they need to live in this world and to serve God. That's the main purposes of the scripture. You know the old joke line, but something to be said for it. Basic instruction before leaving earth, the Bible. <laughs> you know This is the stuff you need. This is the guidebook for life in the midst of this fallen world. How do I live in it? How do I relate to God? How do I understand who he is? How do I understand this world? God has given us written revelation that we can grasp that. He's not left us to figure it out ourselves or to discern it. He goes, and, and so the Bible's not the end of our faith in self. It's a way by which we relate to God. It's a way by which we live in this world, which are the ends. And it's a means to that end. So that is the Bible's claim for itself. I'm always amazed by what people actually believe of those claims. And uh, there was a, there's a study um, that's done every year by the Barna Group called The State of the Bible, And they they do phone and online things of like 2,000 people. And they they, basically, this is a lot of wording. Please don't spend all this time reading it. But they separate into four basic categories. The fifth category is a subset. They divide people into what they call Bible-engaged, which are people who have basically a view that the Bible is inspired by God. And they're people who read and use the Bible at least four times a week. That's Bible-engaged. Bible-friendly, they also have some belief about the inspiration of the Scripture. That's the Word of God. Yet they do it less than four times a week. Uh, Bible-neutral is the... I can't even read how small it is on my thing. View the Bible as the inspired Word of God, but some factual historical errors. Not inspired, but it's, you know, writers understood the ways and principles of God. Very kind of neutral version. Then you have skeptic. Just another book of teachings written by men. And they call Bible hostile, which is a subset of skeptic, which uh, intended to manipulate and control other people. Good view. Um, Now, what's amazing is 20% is the first group. This is in America. And uh, 38%, that second crew, 23%. And the last one, again, is a subset. So it's 19% of Bible skeptics. And what they found is that number is generally pretty stable over the last four years, which is interesting. You'll notice uh, the top line, again, is the... Friendly line, and it's been pretty steady at that number for the last four or five years. The Bible skeptic one, you can see, took a jump from like 2011 to 2014 or 15, and it's been pretty stable since that point. Right, it's at 2011. Right, it uh, was at 10. Uh, Pretty, pretty steady. Now, this is interesting. Um, The average increase, the average age increases as engagement increases. By the way, they've messed up all their coloring on this thing. I felt like writing them and going, guys, you blew it. All right. The dark green should go across the top. All right. So it's Bible. And so it's the Bible engaged. The average age is 53. Bible friendly. The average age is 47. The average age for Bible neutral is 45 and Bible skeptic 43. This is interesting. It's a little contrasting. I was actually part of a Barna um, study on Jewish millennials and their views on spirituality. And they also used the same groupings. By millennials, is up to about eight. By the way, that's about like 18 to 32. Gen X is around like 33 to 50. Baby boomers, like 50 to 67 or 68, something like that, and then elders. And what we actually found was that the millennials and Gen Xers were actually very spiritually curious and spiritually open, yeah. and elders were. But the group of people who were totally like skeptical as all get out and had no interest in spirituality were the boomers. I mean, just precipitously. Very, very interesting study. And that's not just Jewish, that's all folks. But anyway, this found an average age of the skeptic, 43. Um, Here's something interesting, is that they found that most people, though, desired to have greater Bible use. Obviously, the first group, you know, Bible engaged, of course, wanted more. That's what makes them Bible engaged. They want more of the Bible. But the second group, Bible-friendly folks who didn't use it that much, 80% of them wanted to use it more. And Bible-neutral folks, even 40% of them wanted to know it more, but this is the one I love. 20% of Bible skeptics wished they knew the Bible better and used it more, which is, I thought, which is a great, you know, a great stat in themselves. And so what did it take to get more engaged? They found that, uh, and you can answer more than one thing here, as you can see, that it was an important part of the faith journey when they came to understand that, that, that made them more engaged uh, how to increase their Bible engagement, difficult experiences, searching for answers was 40% of them. They saw it changed someone else for the better, 30% of people. They went to a church where the Bible became more accessible, 23%, significant life change. And all these ones, you know, someone asked me to read it, to download it onto a smartphone. There you go, 17%. Media conversations. But to me, it was interesting that the first part, basically what increased your Bible engagement for the most part, was people understood that this is actually a critical part of your faith journey. It's inseparable from it. Because there's a lot of people who say, man, I, you know, I, I come and I want to know more about God. I want to know how to live for him. And to realize that you need to understand that that's inseparable from the scriptures. And you know, to make you grasp, I think what's my main point, one of the main points today is I want you to grasp that. That it's an inseparable idea. The part that I can't understand up there, the, the grouping that just blows me out of the water, is Bible friendly. So you're people who believe the Bible is the word of God, but you don't really read it a whole lot. I'm like, one or the other. Either think it's nonsense, fine, or think it's the word of God and read it. But how do you think it's the word of God and not pay attention to it? That one just, that one is hard. I can't grasp that. I mean, part of me would rather, when I see something like that, and I see, wow, the Bible claims to be the word of God, my personal instincts are to start proving to you as to why that's a reasonable thing to believe. Because if someone walks into a room and says, oh, by the way, I'm holding a book, and this is from the creator of the universe to us. Oh, cool. Thanks. Appreciate that. How could you believe that? That's insane. You know, that's my instinct. You know, I'm a total skeptic at heart. And I'd love to sit here and make all these arguments as to why. But what those stats tell me is my arguments are utterly irrelevant. Because they accept, oh, yeah, it's the word of God. It's like, I don't, the arguments mean nothing. It means nothing if you come to the conclusion that the Bible's the word of God. It really, it does nothing for your life. It only changes your life if you engage in it, if you read it, if you allow the word of God to be alive in your life. And I can tell you that all the arguing in the world actually won't do anything for your convictions as to whether the Bible is the word of God. The only thing that changes your true convictions at your heart level is when you actually experience how it's the living word of God. And so to me, in some ways, don't even bother with having to believe certain things about the Bible. I tell people, just start reading it. Just start reading it. Start watching what God does in your life with it, and you will find, you'll discover an authority it begins to have in your life because of what it is. And I think the key thing also to grasp is an implication. What is the idea that this creator of all things has revealed himself to us? What does that imply about who God is, how he wants to relate to us? What does it imply about that? I think it's amazing that God wants to speak to us. Don't underestimate that. That's enormous. We are not walking alone in this world. In the midst of this broken world, the midst of struggle and suffering and hardship, God wants us to grasp what's happening. He wants us to be able to take hold of hope. He wants us to be able to take these great truths of reality and in the midst of this broken world, be refined individually and to speak words of comfort and strength to others. That he's not left us alone. That's stunning. He wants to help us be parents. He wants to help us learn, how do, how, do I, how do I be at work in the midst of this somewhat hostile environment of skeptics? How do I live in there? Because I don't want you to be alone in that. I want to speak to you. I want to, I want to help you. I want to come alongside of you. Because when you begin to read the Bible, you'll understand, as it says in Hebrews, which was, this was one of the first verses that I made, one of my theme verses, because it described my experience when I first started reading the Bible. It says, for the word of God is living and active, It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Isn't that an amazing line? The Bible judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's like sharp as a sword. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And I can't tell you how many times I've gone on my knees before God, reading the scripture, and I felt like my heart's motives were just laid bare. It's almost like I don't want to open that book because I can't deal with that truth. I don't want to deal with that, the fact that I'm so mad about that thing. I don't want to deal with the darkness that's in my heart. That's the reason why I'm so mad. And for me, it often comes in control issues. You know? I don't know about you. I get, like a, I get obsessive making speeches in my head to people who aren't actually there. And, you know, it's funny, you drive in the car and the kids go, Dad, stop. You're in, you know, they can watch me, You know, face actually moving. And, uh, and, and almost every time that happens, if I sit before God, open it up, I feel like God just reveals to me my own wickedness that's causing that. Um, but I know it's an intimidation idea as to what do I, how do I begin to do that? Okay, and you know, there's a saying, they say, what, when is the best time to become a student of the Bible? And the answer to that is 20 years ago. <laughs> All right, when's the second best time to become a student of the Bible today? You know, um, you, you start. You begin to do it. And so we, this may seem like, you know, 101 Bible stuff. But here's some basic stuff. You're thinking, man, I don't know how to get started. It's kind of intimidating for me. I may be one of those Bible-friendly people, and I'd like to become Bible-engaged. 80% of you do. That's good. Um, How do I begin to do that? Well, this helps me. Some categories, I think, about my Bible study is I always think of my Bible reading in three kind of categories. Overview, devotional, and study. And I try to make them all kind of happening in my life at once. Overview is it's just good to get to know what's there. And just reading overview and you begin to understand things, you get this, the highest context of the scripture and you know how it all fits together, what's going there. And the more you read overview, the more you get. That's like just sitting down there and just reading it, figuring out what's going on there, reading it in context. And it's not that hard. You know, you can read the Bible uh, an entire year in 15 months a day, 15, 15 minutes a day will get you through the Bible in a year. Three in, 23 chapters a uh, week, which is three chapters a day, five on Sunday. You got through it. And um, I'm just say it's not that hard, you know. Just sit, I, I actually prefer to read like a longer blocks. Sit down there on the weekend, you know, get an hour and just kind of blast through a nice big section of it. And some people, you know, there's Bible reading plans where a chapter here, chapter there. I don't like a chapter here, a chapter there, but you might. I find I need context. That's why I like to read larger sections at once, or else it all kind of gets disconnected from everything else around it. And I think Bible overview is to be able to value the connections of them. Remember the Bible, 66 books, not one book. So you don't have to read it in order. Although I think in whole books, and maybe whole sections of books is helpful. But again, just read it. You know, begin reading it, begin to become more familiar with it. You'll be amazed at how much, that every time you read it, and every familiarity you have, you don't actually go backwards. It just keeps on growing. So blast some out and watch how it compiles. Next time you go through the next year, you're like, oh, wow, this connects to that. I see that before. Well, this verse this person said reminds me of what's going on over here, and suddenly there you're off and running and getting it. Second whole area is devotional. The idea that it is the living word of God, right? and leaving space and time for God to actually speak to you. And this may be where you're, you know, you're alone in the morning and it's just a verse you're reading. And you're, you're meditating on that verse. or so you're in prayer going, God, speak to me about that. And you read a small bit. Or maybe you read a small psalm and saying, Lord, you start going, Lord, help me um, you know, speak to me through this. Give me your word. And you begin to read through there and you realize, wow, that word right there, that verse, that thought is for me today. And allow, it's sort of like realizing it is the living and active word of God and allowing it to speak to you. And the third part is study. You know, when, um, when Luther first put the... Um, Bible into German, which was a radical thing at the time. He said, man, so the common people in German could all understand it, uh, uh, Germ- you know, people who speak German. He didn't think that everybody would just be able to look at it and go, oh, wow, I got it. He actually included commentary of each book along the way. He realized that people need teachers. You just can't figure it all out on your own. Then there's, there's amazing teachers everywhere. And I, I look back on my life, and I am so grateful for millions of teachers. Millions is probably much, but thousands. I mean, between books, individuals, people who have talked to me, things I've listened to, countless. And uh, being in group settings are great for that. But studying it, really looking down there, trying to break it apart, think about it, dive deep. Because sometimes you don't have to learn all of the Bible, but sometimes taking a very small bit, which you dive very deeply into, helps you understand it all. And so going and being in, you know, I love manuscript studies for small groups. You know, we just, like, you're, you're just you're attacking the scriptures itself. But there's lots of good stuff and commentaries, and use that. Um, and let me give you another practical thing on the devotional side. If you're thinking, Ash, I can't, that whole idea of getting a little scripture and setting my heart open for God, what can I do? I think a really good starter method, and I, I use this on and off in my life. I call it SOAP. I don't call it, someone else calls it SOAP. But uh, Scripture Observation Application in Prayer. Meaning, um, it's just a little simple thing. You know, you start your day, you have a little journal or whatever. You, you know, I, I actually like, like the journal. You date it, and you're just kind of going through a psalm that day. You know, I'm going through Psalm 23. There's your scripture. Observations. As I read this time, what are some of the things I'm saying? You know, gosh, I'm saying that God, you know, leads us beside still waters and different things and how he, you know, protects us even in the midst of enemies. I'm just kind of looking at those different words, that his presence is key. Whatever happens to speak to you in that moment, right? It's not some deep study. It's what speaks to you as you read it. What are the observations you have and then application. And you ask yourself, maybe on the next section, what does that mean for my life today? How is that applying into my life? And lastly, what are the things I'm praying for? It's a simple thing. You know, it, that's a, again, there's lots and lots of ways to do this, but sometimes, sometimes it's hard to get started. Soaps is a very easy way anyone can begin to access it. Um, and I close there. And the word of God, it says we have access to something unbelievable. It's incredible that God, ha- God wants us to read and to understand. He wants us to be able to take comfort from him, to understand our world. He wants to speak to us. And so many times we don't give him a chance to do that. Have you ever had that? Have you ever had people you've tried to train to do something, but they won't actually listen to you? It is one of the most frustrating things in the world because you want to help them be able to do it, but they think they know it all. And then they end up resenting you for not training them. And you're like, hold on, I was just trying to train you, but you wouldn't listen. Oftentimes I think that's how God is with us. You know, we won't listen. We won't open up things. Then Then we end up resentful as to what happens in our life or something. God wants to make it accessible to us. Let's take him up on his offer. Become a people of the book. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Such knowledge truly is too wonderful for us that you could know us, that you love us, that you long to reveal yourself to us, that you don't need to be a simply an emotional feeling but you've given us objective realities as to who you are that you understand we're these reasoning beings that you've made us these reasoning beings and you give us words and you've that we can understand you you've made us emotional beings that we we need comfort and strength and encouragement thank you Lord that you've made yourself accessible in this way to us and Lord, we confess that we, uh, we don't take you up on it as we should. We don't know the scriptures as we should. We don't engage with it as we should. Now, God, help us. Forgive us. Train us. Teach us. Encourage us. Lead us. Grant us teachers. And make your word come alive to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.